Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm surviving. I'm surviving. Yeah. How are you, Melissa? <laughs> I'm doing really well. Thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> this weather is crazy. Not just hot. Not just hot. We have a new thing now. Torrential downpours constantly. I, I don't even know what else to say about it. It's hot and raining a lot. <laughs> it's the worst combination of things. Mandy texted me this morning and I said, I mean, it was like flooding everywhere. And I said, I'm getting ready to grab two animals on my way. And she wrote <laughs> me back. This is the most confusing thing you've ever written me, which honestly I took as like a badge of pride because I write a lot of confusing <laughs> things. <laughs> but I was referring to Noah's art because it really was just insane this morning. It um, was. It was. We've been getting a ton of bad weather. Like normally, I feel like we're used to getting bad weather in the afternoon. Afternoon, totally fine. Yeah. So, but it's been like different this time around because it's been storming in the morning, which is like it just makes it so hard to get out of bed and get motivated to do anything. I don't want to leave the house. I don't like to drive in the rain, so it kind of puts off my whole day and. Like today, I feel like I didn't even get started on my life until it was like lunchtime, basically. So I'm like, yeah. what's happening right now? So yeah, the rain <laughs> can go away. I Honestly, I think I would rather it just be hot than be hot and raining. No, I agree because you can't even dress for that. It's just a confusing thing. Everything gets wet except for my shoes because I have those cool shoes that we got <laughs> a few months ago. And you know I wear them like yes. a badge of honor as well. I just love them. Um, but like my clothes are all wet, so everything feels sticky and then you're hot. And ugh, yeah, at least if you're hot, you can just put the AC on and you don't have to worry about things like frogs, which all I hear is frogs at night now yes. because of all the Because they're everywhere. Rain. Yeah. <laughs> It's rough. We're going through it, guys. We really uh, are. Feel bad for us. Feel bad for us. Yeah, it is <laughs> almost July, which is also crazy. I know you have a very special birthday coming up in yeah. your house. and But the year just goes by. It's crazy to think that it's already almost July. I was thinking that today. I was like, wow, we're already at the end of June. Like, what? What? Yeah, summer's already <laughs> going through. Like, enough where I'm asking my kids. When do you start school again? Because Me too. it's actually sneaking yeah. up on us. <laughs> well, I had that thought too because my older son, I know that you told me a long, like 
I feel like it's a long time ago now, but probably a couple years ago that your daughter started sleeping in later um, mm-hmm. when she got to like a, a certain age. And I was like, oh, I can't wait until my kids get there because I was always like, nope, mine are always up super duper early. Doesn't yeah. matter. Like they're always up at 7 a.m. Doesn't matter how late we've had, you know, what how late of a night we've had before. Uh, but now my almost 14 year old is sleeping until like almost 12 o'clock every day. And I'm also like, okay, that's too much. You like, we need to start getting our bodies back to a normal routine. You got some time. You got some time. (laughs) One less mouth in the mornings. That's what I think. Like one person. It is very quiet. I've got a quiet. Yeah, you've got a quiet thing. So yeah, I have to wake my daughter up like 11 o'clock. I'm like, all right, we're done. It's time for chores. You got to do something with your day. But, but it is quiet. So yes, I don't. But like you don't said, it's my biggest thing bear. is thinking like the first day of school is going to be like such a nightmare if I don't get him. It's going to be a nightmare no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So who cares? <laughs> I know. Enjoy like, your summer. Prep a week in advance. Yeah, just enjoy it. My goodness. There you go. So a couple of weeks ago, while I was doing my nightly Instagram scrolling, some people call this doom scrolling. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so while That's I was doing, is. yeah, while I was doing that, I saw a post that caught my attention, and it said Unabomber dead. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was found dead in his prison cell at the age of eighty-one. So immediately, why did I find this shocking? I don't know. Eighty-one-year-old men die all the time. I don't know why I was just yeah. so blown away by this. But Melissa, I texted you right away. I was like, "Look at this. Ted Kaczynski has passed away," and we talked just for a second about how just crazy it is because he's one of the most prolific and well-known serial killers of art that we ever grew up hearing about. So to hear about him passing away and just kind of that chapter of history being closed, I don't know. For some reason on that particular night, it just hit me. But like we've said before, (laughs) things are always way different at night than they are the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) But by the next morning, I was still thinking that we should discuss the case of the Unabomber on the podcast because he had passed away and because I was legitimately a child and kind of it kind of sounded like more of an urban legend to me at the time uh the crimes of ted kaczynski so i didn't actually know a ton about his background and where he really came from and i found all of it really interesting so i'm super excited to talk about it today because i'm thinking there's probably more people out there that don't really know the full history of ted kaczynski there are while you are young there are people that are younger than you and <laughs> hard to believe they, honestly <laughs> shut up <laughs> They might not know. But it is true. It's like this weird gap in in history. If you weren't alive for, you know, if you weren't over 10 in 1990, whatever, then you really just might not have even heard of him. Yeah. So as you said, um, I was only eight years old when Ted was arrested in April of 1996. And his name kind of faded from the mainstream very quickly. So I didn't fully grasp that the story was entirely true until I got much older. But by that time, I had already kind of heard the basics of what Ted did and didn't really bother to deep dive into it. Somehow, like I said, still hadn't done that until now. All I really knew about the case was that many people had either been killed or injured in a series of bombings that lasted for years. In the last couple of weeks since the Unabomber died in prison, we have learned that he took his own life early on Saturday, June 10th, 2023, amidst a battle with late-stage cancer. But the full story of his life and crimes are both fascinating and terrifying, and we are going to break it all down for you right now. It probably goes without saying that people don't just wake up one day and decide they're going to start mailing bombs around the country. For the most part, you would absolutely expect there to be some lengthy and complicated backstory that led this person to carry out such an evil act. And in the case of the infamous Unabomber, there is certainly a complicated backstory. Theodore John Kaczynski was born in Evergreen Park, Illinois on May 22, 1942. He was the first son born to Wanda and Theodore Sr., who were average working-class citizens. When Ted was seven years old, his little brother David was born. Ted was truly no ordinary child. From an early age, it was clear that there was something very unique about him. In his teens, he took an IQ test that confirmed that he was, in fact, a genius. He scored a 167 on the test, which we still have not bothered to look into. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how that test is scored, yeah. (laughs) But I've heard some other numbers, and 167 is way higher, so I think he's doing pretty good. But because of this incredibly high intelligence, Ted actually skipped two grades in elementary school, which sounds like it could be a cool flex, but Ted actually felt like it stunted his emotional intelligence. I never really thought about that in skipping grades, but think of how much your kid changes from one year to the next, and like, 
sometimes you even hold them back because they're not quite emotionally ready. You know, it's funny um, that this came up and I don't say this to like brag about myself, but actually I almost did skip the fourth grade and my parents ended up deciding not to let me do that because, uh, because of that, they didn't want me going on to be in a class with older peers because they thought that like I just was not like mature, maturely, you know, ready to go from third grade to fifth grade because that's such a big difference. So I ended up not, but um, yeah, that was like one of the reasons, but it is something that you don't really necessarily think about in the long-term effects of having uh, your child being like a year ahead or two years in this case ahead of everybody else that he's in class with. And some kids I think can adjust just fine, but sometimes I think it's really difficult. I started school early, so I had a September birthday and it's like that cutoff. So I was always like a year younger than everyone. That was fine, but uh, I definitely wasn't smart enough to be there. I don't know how I ended up there. Um, So (laughs) back to Ted, he often really felt like an outcast, which you can imagine when you're two years younger than all your peers. He was known for being great at math, but also for being a loner. Ted remained ahead throughout his schooling, and he graduated high school early. Although fitting in wasn't something Ted was good at, excelling in academics was. He earned a scholarship to Harvard, and he began attending the prestigious college in 1958 at the age of 16. Even in this high-demand school, Ted often finished at the top of his classes. About a year into his time at Harvard, Ted and 21 other students voluntarily signed up for a Harvard psychological experiment, which sounds kind of cool, right? Well, back in 1959, psychological studies done on humans were often inhumane and unethical with unpredictable outcomes on the test subjects. The experiment in particular was led by Henry A. Murray, who was an American psychologist that conducted these horrible psychological experiments on minors and undergraduate students. These experiments were purposely and intentionally abusive, all in the name of finding out what would happen. These experiments were carried out from 1959 to 1962. In this particular experiment, the objective was to, quote, explore the effects of stress on the human psyche. And this was in order to, quote, assess the value of interrogation techniques used by law enforcement and national security agents in the field. So these techniques in question were the kind that were just really designed to break enemy agents and render them so damaged that they would be operationally useless, which doesn't sound like something we should be testing out on volunteers, um, college students. That's definitely wouldn't fly today. But back in 1959, things were a lot more wild and free and different, and they didn't care back then about what the consequences of something like this could be on a person. It was completely fine to do this. So the details of the study are actually really disturbing. If we look at them from the point of view of living in 2023, the participants were asked to write an essay describing their personal worldview, describe their personal beliefs, and even their deepest sexual desires. And they were told that they would be debating these philosophies with fellow undergraduate students, which immediately would put me off of this entire experiment. Like, I have to not only do – like. I don't know. It's, it's one, one thing to be in a secret room by yourself exactly, and you have to say these things. Right. But the second I have to now explain. I don't want to debate my choices with anyone. But that was kind of like the whole point of this entire Sure. Experiment. It's why I would not have qualified. Right. Exactly. However, once the whole experiment actually started, so instead of just debating, these undergrads were actually placed in a room with bright lights and a one-way mirror, and they were strapped to a chair with electrodes attached to them so their physiological responses could be measured and documented. They were put through really the most brutal torture uh, you can possibly imagine by a law student. And this law student had been given what they were calling a battle plan from the experiment leader. And this plan included multiple means of humiliating, verbally assaulting, and sexually debasing these undergrad participants based on the philosophies of their own life that they had already shared. Essentially, the law student's job was to make the participants as angry as possible. Oh, I wouldn't want to be on either side of this, honestly. No, no, no. This sounds terrible. Awful. So after these sessions would end, the participant then had to watch a recording of everything that had just happened to them. So not only do they have to live through this experience, but then they have to watch back on video as they are being humiliated and mocked. So yeah, 
So this experiment ended up going on for a total of three years. And according to the History Channel, Ted may have spent over 200 total hours in the experiment. And it's believed that this greatly affected his mental and emotional state and may have played a role in the development of paranoid schizophrenia. After three years at Harvard, Ted graduated with a bachelor's degree in mathematics. He went on to study at the University of Michigan, where he later graduated with a master's degree in 1964 and a doctorate in math in 1967. Ted's brother David later said, quote, It was pretty clear by the time that he was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, he was suffering from some pretty serious delusions. He stopped going to classes. He would be in his room. He was having delusions that people were laughing about him or making fun of him or plotting against him. And that all makes a lot of sense based on what he's gone through. For sure. I would love to know where the other people that were in this study, what happened with Me them. Me too, this yeah. Is, wow, this is intense. So shortly after obtaining his doctorate, Ted became an assistant professor at the University of California in Berkeley, where he taught geometry and calculus. The school had one of the top-rated mathematics programs in the country. Ted had always been the youngest of his peers, and it was no different here. He was the youngest assistant math professor to ever work at the university. He wasn't known for being a friendly or a warm personality on campus. His style went against the trends of the time, and he didn't participate in any of the social movements of the time, such as the anti-war movement, civil rights movement, or the free speech movement. In fact, he was actually widely unpopular among students. They often had negative things to say about their experience with him. One student said that Ted would just refuse to answer questions by completely ignoring the person who asked it. And another student said that Ted's lectures were useless and they were just right from the book. Oh my gosh, I had some professors like this in college that were like so dry and boring and it literally felt like they were just reading from the textbook and were just totally unhelpful. That's how I'm picturing him, just like yeah. being in the room and just being But can there. you imagine <laughs> raising your hand and somebody just being like downright, they will not answer you? That is a wild... No, and I would be furious because I'm paying for this class. So I'm paying also for the teacher to give me their attention when I need it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so maybe Ted just didn't really care for the profession, but either way, he didn't last very long. In 1969, he resigned with no explanation, and he moved back home to Illinois to live with his parents, where he stayed for the next two years. In 1971, Ted tried to move to Canada, but his application was denied. So instead, he bought himself 1.4 acres of land in a town outside of Lincoln, Montana, called Florence Gulch. He built a tiny cabin, 10 by 12 feet, that had no electricity, running water, or indoor plumbing. It was more like a shack, very bare bones. It's really true wilderness living. He also hunted and farmed and taught himself how to live in the wild and off the land. He often ate squirrels, rabbits, parsnips, and berries. Ted really enjoyed his simple, peaceful life in the woods. But in 1975, land developers had started moving into the area and more construction sites were popping up near Ted's cabin. He started to vandalize the construction sites in an effort to stop the development of the area. At some point before or during 1978, Ted wrote a journal entry that kind of sheds light on his mental state and thought process at that time. He wrote, quote, I emphasize that my motivation is personal revenge. I don't pretend to have any kind of philosophical or moralistic justification. My ambition is to kill a scientist, big businessman, government official, or the like. I would also like to kill a communist, end quote. Ted would end up sending his first of 16 total bombs in 1978, kicking off a 17-year-long streak of madness that would go down in history as one of the most notorious crime sprees known to man. It was May 25, 1978, when Mary Gutierrez came upon a package wrapped in brown paper on the campus of the University of Illinois in Chicago. Mary saw that the package was marked return to sender, so she tried to actually mail the package back herself, but it wouldn't fit in the mailbox. It was originally addressed to E.J. Smith, who was an engineering professor at a college in Troy, New York, and the return sender was listed as Buckley Christ, who was a professor at Northwestern University, which is a university that's actually about 45 minutes away from where this package was found at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So the woman who found it, Mary, probably thought the package had just been mistakenly delivered there, and she just wanted to be a good person and send it on its way and make sure it got where it was going. 
Since she couldn't fit the package in the mailbox, she decided to hand deliver it to the sender herself. As I said, it was only about 45 minutes away. So she really was going above and beyond to, nice dri- neighbor. Right, to drive this package <laughs> 45 minutes away back to the person uh, who originally mailed it out so that they could resend it or what have you. The next day, May 26th, 1978, Professor Christ received the return package and immediately became suspicious because he didn't send it and he had no idea why his name was on it. So Chris notified the campus police and an officer named Terry Marker came and inspected the package. Upon opening it, a bomb exploded, leaving Terry with thankfully just minor injuries. Local police were then contacted and officers discovered that the package had a bomb made out of a nine inch long piece of metal pipe that was filled with explosive powders. The triggering device on this bomb was just a nail held by rubber bands that was meant to light matches when the box was opened. The box itself was made of wood, as were the pieces that were used to plug the ends of the pipe. Because this was just the first bomb, investigators had no idea that this was the work of the man who would become known as the Unabomber. And we have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We are deep into wedding season. Whether you're going to be a stunning bride, a member of the bridal party, or you just need a little oomph for your everyday fit, Honey Love has you covered. Shapewear doesn't have to be a four-letter word, thanks to Honey Love's revolutionized compression technology. That means that you don't have to feel like you're wearing one of those medieval corsets that make you hold your breath by simply looking at them. And maybe you aren't getting ready to walk down the aisle, but that doesn't mean you don't deserve to look and feel your best when you're out and about. With Honey Love Superpower Short, you're being sculpted and smooth from your stomach to your thighs with the perfect amount of compression. Best of all, you don't have to worry about Honey Love rolling down on you. If you've ever tried that other shapewear, you know what I mean. Honey Love has flexible boning that's hidden in the side seams, which means it stays in place even when you're on the go. I wore my Honey Love a few months ago when we were filming for 2020. This was a sitting kind of thing, which meant shapewear had to really work. And my Honey Love did. Honey Love not only smoothed my tummy and hips, but it was actually comfortable. Treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash moms20. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com slash moms20. Did you know that an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year? And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which means not only is it heavy to ship, but shipping it leads to excessive carbon emissions. Plus, those products are often filled with nasty ingredients like chlorine and ammonia, This is just a lose-lose situation for you and the planet. And that's why we love Blueland. Blueland makes cleaning so easy. You just fill up your bottles with water, drop in a Blueland's tablet, and wait for it to dissolve. I'm a planner, so I like to have a few extra cleaning products around. And let me tell you, there is a huge difference in storage space when you're comparing a few Blueland tablets in your closet to a few bottles of cleaning product. And Blueland is basically a one-stop shop for everything you need, from toilet bowl cleaner to cleaning sprays, all made with clean ingredients you can feel good about. And with their Clean Essentials Kit, which I personally love, you'll get everything you need to get started, including three bottles of cleaner, plus a bottle of hand soap. And it all comes in beautiful, sleek bottles with light scents like fresh lemon or my personal favorite, eucalyptus mint. To get 15% off your first order, go to blueland.com moms. You won't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash moms. That's blueland.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing the first bomb that had been found that is later linked to Ted Kaczynski. And the next bomb was sent almost a year after the first on May 9th, 1979. A graduate student named John Harris was at Northwestern's Technological Institute in Evanston, Illinois, when a cigar box he opened promptly exploded, causing minor cuts and burns. Harris was a mathematics graduate student at the university. In this case, the bomb was made of tape, wires, fishing line, a lamp cord, and wooden dowels. It had a battery-operated filament wire that ignited the explosive powders inside. Later that same year, on November 15th, reports of another bomb quickly spread. This time, the situation was even more dangerous because the bomb was found on an American Airlines flight from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Passengers were startled when smoke began to fill the cabin mid-flight and the plane had to be diverted to Dulles Airport to make an emergency landing. Twelve people on board ended up being treated for smoke inhalation. 
So they ended up finding a defective bomb in a mailbag that was in the cargo hold of the plane. It was supposed to explode, but it was made with barium nitrate, which is used to create free smoke and fireworks, but not to explode. So it ended up really just being a smoke bomb. It was triggered by an altimeter, which is something I don't know, uh, but it's a device apparently that is used to measure the altitude of an object, which makes sense. It's an airplane thing. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Okay. That, (laughs) thank you, Mandy. That wins. So basically, the whole intention was for it to blow up in the sky, obviously. So at this point, the bombs have gotten the attention of the FBI, and they were able to tie all three of them together. So they began a task force just to investigate the case starting in 1979. So the FBI named the investigation Unibomb, which stood for University and Airline Bombing Targets. Soon after that, the attacker started being referred to as the Unabomber. Raise your hand if you just learned this information just now. <laughs> Absolutely. I just, it's one of those words that you just hear and you never think about. And so Unabomber, whenever I read this, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I never put, I never questioned why, why it would be that. Honestly, I thought it meant one bomber. Me too. Okay. I was saying just using context clues from like other times in my life, I was thinking like Una, meaning one. Of them, there's only one bomber, right? It's like the one bomber making all these bombs. That's what I really thought it was. But of course, it wouldn't be that. That would not make any sense at all. Really? I think we were okay thinking that. I think our spelling was bad on that. But I think overall, like, we had something going for us. But it is one of those funny terms that you're just like, oh, that's that's actually had a meaning. It It was an acronym. Who knew? The FBI headed the task force with the help of ATF and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. There were more than 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and more working on the case. That's so much manpower. So all three of the bombs up to this point were thoroughly examined and documented. It was noticed that the labels were removed from the batteries to make them untraceable, and that the Unabomber used melted-down deer hooves as a homemade epoxy instead of using a commercial glue that could be traced. That is, I don't even know how you get to that. Like, how do you even figure out that's what was being used? I don't know how they figured out that that's what he was using, but I, I mean. have heard of like hooves being used in glue making. Like I've definitely well, isn't heard that the of whole thing with thing. horses? Because don't you hear like they're going to send them to the glue factory if something happens? <laughs> oh my gosh, I've never actually heard that, but that makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know why I've heard that. It's not something I say. I just feel like I've heard people talk about sending. Horses to the glue factory. I love horses. Don't do that. (laughs) There were no fingerprints or DNA found on the bombs or the packages. Soon after the airplane bomb, Ted wrote another entry in his journal that read, quote, since committing these crimes reported elsewhere in my notes, I feel better. I am still plenty angry, you understand, but the difference is that I am now able to strike back to a degree. He seems really proud of himself. And if you read between the lines, he is clearly planning on continuing to make and send bombs. On June 10th, 1980, the Unabomber struck again. The president of United Airlines, who at the time was a man named Percy Wood, received a book in the mail at his home in Lake Forest, Illinois. Percy was married with four sons and had worked for United Airlines for over four decades, serving as president and COO. He was described as being an optimist and a dedicated man. The book that he was mailed was actually hollowed out, and it contained a bomb on the inside. The explosion caused severe bruising and cuts to most of Percy's body and his face, and he had to spend several weeks in the hospital undergoing multiple surgeries on his hands. This bomb was different from the others in that it had the letters FC punched into the side, which the FBI later figured out stood for Freedom Club, and it would actually appear on future bombs as well. We'll get into that a little bit more later. But what's interesting to me is that Ted would send these bombs and then would wait several months or a year or even multiple years before he would strike again. So the next attack wasn't until October 8th, 1981. A maintenance worker found a bomb on the University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. This time, the bomb was able to be disarmed before anyone was hurt or there was any damage done. Six months after this failed attempt, on May 5, 1982, a secretary at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, was seriously injured when she opened a return package addressed to her boss, Patrick Fisher. This woman named Janet Smith was severely burned and wounded by shrapnel. 
She actually spent three weeks in the hospital recovering. Patrick Fisher, who was the intended target, was the head of the computer science department. Interestingly enough, his father was a math professor at the university where Ted Kaczynski got his graduate degree and doctorate. He went on to teach at Harvard, Cornell, Penn State, University of Waterloo, and Vanderbilt before he retired in 1998. He worked in computer science and helped to make internet searches possible. Like this is thank a, you, thank an you for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he was a husband and father who did pass away in 2011. On July 2nd, 1982, the next suspicious package was found by an engineering professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Professor Angelikos found a weird device with dials and a handle in the faculty lounge. When he opened the handle, an explosion went off and he was seriously injured with shrapnel wounds to his right hand and face as well as severe burns. The professor was known for being a pioneer in the field of microwaves, antennas, and electromagnetic waves. He worked until 1990 and then served as a graduate advisor, graduate affirmative action advisor, and the campus ombudsman for student affairs. He was on campus nearly every day, even after he retired. He was awarded the Berkeley Citation, which is the highest honor for a Berkeley professor. He died in 1997. For the next three years, investigators were on edge as they waited for the Unabomber to strike again. But all was quiet until May 15, 1985. By this time, Ted had been working on his techniques, and he had changed his design to be even more destructive. It was filled with a mix of ammonium nitrate and aluminum powder, as well as shrapnel made of tacks, nails, and pieces of lead. So this bomb was also punched with the letters FC before it was sent once again to Berkeley. This time, a graduate student named John E. Hauser picked up the package in the computer science lab at the university. The package had actually been sitting in the lab for about two to three days, and this student thought that it was a file box that belonged to another student, and so he wanted to find out who it belonged to so he could return it. John Hauser was an Air Force pilot who aspired to become an astronaut. As he opened the box, he heard a buzzing sound just before the bomb detonated, completely mutilating his right hand and severing many of his arteries. Hauser ended up losing four of his fingers and most of the ability that he had in his right hand, which is devastating anyway, but what was one of the most devastating things about that for him was that it meant he could no longer be a pilot and the dreams he had of becoming an astronaut were forever shattered. Oddly, Professor Angelikos, who was the last person to be injured by the Unabomber attack, was actually still working at Berkeley when this second bomb was sent to them. And he's the one who heard John Hauser screaming and went in to help him. He actually used his necktie as a tourniquet on Hauser's hand, which that part, I would never leave home again. Like, I can't imagine being involved in two Unabomber attacks in any capacity like that. That would just freak me out so bad. I would not want to work there anymore. I wouldn't, I would have to move. I don't know. I would be terrified. How incredible that he had the wherewithal, like that, in, I, I can't imagine going through that a second time and seeing right. it, but he was able to like get it together and actually help this guy because right. I, I wouldn't blame somebody if they ran off into the woods For after sure. this happened. Yeah. So the next bomb was found just under a month later on June 13th, 1985 at a Boeing aircraft plant in Auburn, Washington. A mailroom clerk found a suspicious package there and called authorities, and a bomb was found inside that was very similar to the bomb from the last attack just a month earlier, and this bomb also had the letters FC punched into it. So months later, on November 15, 1985, a psychology professor in Ann Arbor, Michigan, found a package at his home with a letter taped to the top that said, quote, I'd like you to read this book. Everybody in your position should read this book, end quote. The man, James V. McConnell, was a retired professor from the University of Michigan. He got his own PhD from the University of Texas. During his career, he wrote a textbook called Understanding Human Behavior, which is a very popular textbook. I've heard of it. I'm sure you've heard of it. He was well-respected in his profession and field and received the American Psychological Foundation's Award for Distinguished Teaching in 1976. When McConnell got the package, he asked his research assistant, Nicholas Suno, to open it for him, and he ended up being burned and injured by shrapnel when the package exploded. McConnell was also close enough to the blast that he suffered hearing loss. A few weeks later, on December 11, 1985, the first Unabomber attack to result in death happened. A man named Hugh Scratton was in the parking lot behind the computer store that he owned when he saw a paper bag that had a block of wood with nails coming out of it. 
So Scruton goes out to the parking lot and goes to move the bag, but the package exploded when he moved it, killing him instantly. The bomb was made out of three 10-inch pipes filled with potassium sulfate, potassium chloride, aluminum powder, and shrapnel made of sharp chunks of metal, nails, and splinters. The bomb was also stamped with FC. It's unknown whether or not Ted Kaczynski knew Scruton personally or not. And after this attack, the Unabomber went quiet again for over a year. It seems at this point like the Unabomber was satisfied with his overall design and the outcome of the bomb that left Mr. Scruton dead because a similar setup was found in a Salt Lake City parking lot on February 20th, 1987. When the owner of Cam's Inc., which is a computer shop nearby, went outside to remove the piece of wood from the parking lot, it exploded and over 200 pieces of shrapnel went into his body. He was left with severe nerve damage to his left arm. The victim was named Gary Wright. He was a husband and father of two who also worked as a football coach. The bomb in this case was more advanced in terms of having a new and more sensitive triggering device. But for the first time ever, a witness actually saw the person who dropped off this bomb, and she described the man to police as wearing aviator sunglasses and a hood. And if you've ever seen that famous sketch of the Unabomber, it was this woman's description that really led to that sketch, the only one that you've ever really seen with him with the glasses on and um, with his head covered up. So maybe it was the sketch being released that scared him quiet, or maybe he just felt like laying low for a while, but he actually did not send another bomb for another five years. It wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until June 22nd, 1993. This time, the bomb was found back in California at the home of Charles Epstein, who was a geneticist at the University of California, San Francisco. His daughter carried the package inside and set it on the family's kitchen table. The envelope contained a wooden box about the size of a shoebox, and when Charles opened it, you guessed it, the package exploded. Charles lost three of his fingers and part of his hearing in the blast. Two days later, on June 24th, 1993, a computer science professor at Yale named David opened a similar envelope and box, and he was also seriously injured. His right eye was permanently damaged, he lost his hand, and he was burned by the shrapnel. Interestingly, David actually claims that he's the person who invented social media. (laughs) I don't know if I'm saying thank you for that one, though. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) He later sued Apple, actually, for stealing his live streams innovations and actually won $25 million in the lawsuit. So this guy's probably the one who created social media. Yeah. Uh, David's own father was a pioneer in artificial intelligence, um, which... Again, it's so strange to me thinking about this stuff being done and thought about like in the 90s and earlier. Like the fact that someone already thought of the concept of social media pre-90s seems so bizarre to me because it really didn't become a thing until like well into like the 2000s. So to think about people in like the 80s thinking about social media, like that just seems weird and very like sci-fi to me. (laughs) Like it just doesn't seem like, you know, maybe it's just me. No, no, no. I, I get what you're saying. That's so weird. Also on June 24th, the New York Times announced that they had received a letter to the editor from an anarchist group that called themselves FC, or Freedom Club. This was interesting because some of the bombs over the years had been stamped with FC. So in this letter, this club took responsibility for the bombs on June 22nd and June 24th, and they said they would be in contact in the future. As we know, FC wasn't a group, it was really just Ted on his own. And the letter was later attributed to the Unabomber. The next letter came on April 24th, 1995, along with another bomb. The president of the California Forestry Association in Sacramento, California, got a package that was addressed to William Dennison, who was the former president of the association. So it's unclear if Ted targeted Dennison because of his connection to Berkeley, but in the end, it was Gilbert B. Murray who opened the package and was killed. The letter sent to the New York Times on the same day indicated that the Unabomber had written a 29 to 37,000 word article or manifesto called Industrial Society and Its Future, which is kind of a wild title for what I would assume was going on in this letter, but it it sounds much more academic than um, than than a manifesto. (laughs) So he wanted this word salad to be published in a paper like the New York Times, Newsweek, or Times, and said he would agree to stop attacking people once it was printed. If they refused to print it, he said he would blow up a plane. 
So the FBI ended up giving the Washington Post permission to publish an eight-page version of the Unabomber's essay, which explained his motives and, quote, views of the ills of modern society, end quote. So they obviously have a strategy in this whole thing, and their strategy in publishing this essay was in the hope that someone would recognize the words of the author, which could provide more leads. And their tactic worked. Someone did recognize the writing. And we are going to get into who that was and what happened next after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We have enough to worry about without needing to worry about body odor. And that's why we're so excited to tell you about Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. And we aren't just talking the pits. Lumi works on all your parts, pits, privates, and beyond. And it works for 72 hours. Lumi was created by an OBGYN who was seeing firsthand that normal body odor was not only being misdiagnosed, but was also being mistreated. And what I love about Lumi is that it can be used anywhere and everywhere. Lumi comes in all different shapes and sizes from solid stick deodorant to deodorant wipes, which are my personal favorite. Lumi is there for you when you need it. I keep Lumi wipes in my gym bag because you never know when a trip to the gym is going to turn into a trip to the gym, to the grocery store, and then to Target. Truly, the only thing I don't like about Lumi is that it didn't exist years ago. Lumi Starter Pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi Starter Pack with code MOMS at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code MOMS. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're somehow already halfway through 2023, and our kids are out for the summer, and life is busier than ever before. And you know what doesn't care if you're busy or not? Your mental health. In fact, mine gets extra busy when it knows I'm already running ragged, which is why therapy has been such a benefit for me for years. And if you're looking to give therapy a try for yourself, you should check out BetterHelp. Whether you're in the thick of it with family or work, or you just need to talk through your thoughts or are looking for tools to create more balance in your life... BetterHelp can be a great asset to you. BetterHelp is completely online, and it's made to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. To get started, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find that things aren't clicking with your therapist, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. For me, therapy has always been a way for me to process those big feelings and emotions that you don't want to admit to anyone else. And with BetterHelp being online, it's just easier for me to actually schedule and stick to an appointment. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. 
Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about some of the first attacks of Ted Kaczynski up to the point that he finally released his very, very long manifesto and wanted it posted in a major news outlet, such as the New York Times or something along those lines. The Washington Post was given the okay by the FBI to post a scaled down version of this manifesto, which thank goodness, because I can't imagine them printing however many pages that would have required. So they posted about an eight-page version in their newspaper. So after this essay was published, thousands of tips about potential suspects started to roll in. The most important tip, however, came from David Kaczynski, Ted's brother. While David was helping his mother move, he had found a bunch of old letters and documents that Ted had written, and he noticed that they were very similar to the published essay in the Washington Post. David had his wife Lynn to look at it, and she agreed there were a lot of similarities, so together they decided to go ahead and contact the FBI. David handed over the letters, and the FBI performed the first ever linguistic analysis on one of the documents um, that was actually 23 pages long, and the use of forensic linguistics ended up becoming really popular after this case. It's kind of interesting. It's crazy that this is like the first case they ever really analyzed, like writing and compared it with another sample to determine whether or not the same person wrote it. Um, But of course, as we know, that's that's a very common thing now, like to analyze Mm -hmm. handwriting. Um, But this was the first case that really ever used that. So the results showed that the person who wrote the 35,000-word essay was most certainly Ted Kaczynski. The 23-page document that they had examined was written in the same chronological order as the essay. It was really essentially just an outline of the larger writing that he wanted published in major news publications. Many of the same terms were actually used in both of the samples as well. These results, combined with the information that David provided to the FBI about Ted, were enough to get a search warrant. It was March of 1996 when the FBI first began watching and keeping tabs on Ted. Agents moved to Lincoln, Montana and blended in undercover as regular citizens of the town. Other agents were in other places that Ted had previously lived, such as Berkeley and Chicago. Um, they really were hoping to just get as many you know, people behind this, as much manpower as possible, because they wanted to have a chance at catching Ted, actually mailing a bomb so that they could swoop in and arrest him right then and there. So for now, they were just planning on keeping surveillance on him at all times. Understandably, David did not want the FBI to announce his participation in the investigation, but information regarding his involvement was leaked to Dan Rather of CBS News, and at that point, all hell broke loose. This information leak included sensitive information about what the FBI was doing, including that they had been staking out Ted's cabin and following him around. CBS contacted the FBI and told them that they planned to run a story naming Ted as a suspect in the Unabomber case. The FBI asked them to refrain from releasing this story just yet because they still needed more time to move in on Ted to make sure he was really their guy and not just some random mountain man. After all, they'd faced thousands of leads that ended up going nowhere. And, you know, who knows, this could have been just another one of those. So CBS agreed to hold the story back for a while, but then they started to worry that another news station would break the story first. So they told the FBI they couldn't wait any longer. This is so wild to me. I didn't, I mean... I know that the free, there's freedom of press, right? Like they can yes. they can report on anything they want, but like I guess I just never thought about it that way. That like they can be like, "Sorry, FBI, like we don't care about yeah. your investigation into Toodles. getting catching this person that's like bombing everyone. We're right. going to report on it anyway and potentially like mess this whole thing up." Like that's crazy to me that that is even that that's a thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I had no idea about this part in the story for sure. So of course, this puts the FBI in a position of having to act fast for their own safety. They wanted to surprise Ted when they apprehended him, not give him a chance to know that they're coming and potentially harm the authorities. So the release of the story meant that the FBI had to swoop in before they were actually ready, which is never a good thing in any cases, but especially a case like this. The FBI did investigate this initial leak, but they never found out who did it, which that part, I don't know if I believe. I think they might've known who did it. They're just not going to tell us. Yeah. Um, I got very conspiracy theory there for just a brief moment. (laughs) I'm back. (laughs) So thankfully, Ted was arrested without incident on April 3rd, 1996. 
Inside his cabin, they found 40,000 handwritten journal pages, including notes on bomb-making experiments, descriptions of Unabomber crimes, details of his life, his bombing campaign, anger, and more. A live bomb that was ready to be mailed was also found in the cabin, along with the original copy of the manifesto, multiple typewriters, and bomb-making supplies and equipment. Up to the point of his arrest, it cost over $50 million and more than a million hours of work to finally identify who the Unabomber was. Wow. To start off with, Ted was only charged with possessing bomb components, while the FBI worked to undoubtedly tie him to at least one of the bombings so that they could bring more serious charges. Eventually, they were able to connect Ted to the Unabomber attacks, and after 17 years, they were finally sure that they had the right guy. They decided to seek charges in California and New Jersey because those were the states that allowed the death penalty. In California, Ted was indicted on four counts of transporting an explosive in interstate commerce with intent to kill or injure, plus three counts of mailing an explosive device with intent to kill or injure, and three counts of using a destructive device during and in relation to a crime of violence. In New Jersey, he was indicted on just one count of each of those same charges. On May 15, 1997, it was announced that the government was seeking the death penalty for both indictments. Ted's trial was held in Sacramento, California. The Smithsonian described his behavior in court as polite, attentive, and calm. His defense wanted to introduce evidence that Ted was suffering from major mental illness because they felt that was really their best chance at getting the death penalty taken off the table. However, Ted was not interested in having people discuss his mental health. He really did not want that to be drugged through the mud in court. And he even took it so far as to try firing his attorneys um, because they wanted him to plead guilty by reason of insanity. And he didn't want to do that. So he tried to fire them and hire a private attorney. But the judge on his case actually said, no, you can't do that because that's going to take forever (laughs) to start over at this point. So the judge said, no, it would take too long for another attorney to take over the case and start reviewing all the evidence. And they had to move forward. So the Smithsonian surmised that if Ted was able to hire a private attorney, his whole defense pretty much would have just been relaying his manifesto and stating why he felt justified in doing the things he did anyway. So probably didn't miss out on much. Yeah. In early January of 1998, it's believed that Ted made an attempt to take his own life with a pair of underwear in his jail cell. He was put on 24-hour suicide watch and underwent a psychiatric evaluation so they could be sure he was competent to stand trial. Ultimately, he was deemed competent. Since the judge said Ted couldn't hire a private attorney, he decided to move to his plan B, which was to represent himself. The judge also denied this request. Right after this request was denied, Ted's lawyer said that Ted was willing to sign a plea deal. On January 22, 1998, Ted agreed to plead guilty to all charges in California and New Jersey in exchange for having the death penalty taken off the table. On May 4, 1998, Ted was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences plus 30 years. He was also ordered to pay over $15 million in restitution. This case brought about a change in the protocol for how we send packages through the Postal Service now. After the Unabomber, USPS changed their rules so that packages weighing more than a pound had to be mailed in person via postal clerk rather than being dropped off in a mailbox. So during his time in prison, Ted published two books. They're called Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How, and the other one is Technological Slavery, the collected writings of Theodore J. Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, which I guess if you have that kind of a name, own it? you would do an a.k.a. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. Well, I'm you... assuming any money that was made goes to restitution, For so sure, fine, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But it's still sick to think that anyone would buy those, you know, like, I don't like thinking There's about... There's a curiosity factor, I'm sure. There is, but... And if you thought it it was going to restitution, yeah. But then it also just concerns me about that kind of stuff being out there for copycat people or people who also are like unwell and thinking about doing things like this and they want to hear it from a pro, I guess. Like that's the part that I'm like, I don't know if I like that. Yeah. Well, you'll hear a lot of times in cases where the judge will order like nothing can be made from this. You can't make a penny off this. You can't sell it. You can't write a book. You can't do anything. And I sometimes wonder if it's like cases like this where they're like, okay, now we have to add add this to the end of the trial. Later, Harvard ran a report for the 50-year reunion of Ted's graduating class. 
Ted listed his occupation as prisoner and his four life sentences as awards, which <laughs> is probably not what they were asking for. He had been serving his time at a maximum security prison in Colorado until December 2021 when he was transferred out due to his declining health. He was moved to a federal medical center where he remained until his death. Just after midnight on June 10th, 2023, 81-year-old Ted was found unresponsive in his cell. He was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. Mandy, I feel like this is one of those stories you know bits and pieces of. For sure. But hearing all of it is just wild. And like really thinking over the span of decades that somebody did this, like the hot, cold thing he would send to and then he wouldn't do anything for five years. It's just wild. It's amazing that they ever caught him, to be quite honest, because he seemed incredibly smart. He was not out there living in the rest of the world. Like he's off by himself. If it wasn't for his brother, who knows what would have happened? For sure. Um, I feel like one of the other things, like we had said in in the beginning, was that, you know, this story always used to feel kind of like more like urban legend to me. But like one thing that I feel like I heard a lot was something about bombs being in someone's shoes with the Unabomber. Was that just like a Mandela effect thing that I had going on? I remember hearing that as part of the story. I didn't see anything about shoes in the research for this one. So um, I don't know. Was there a different shoe bomber? If there's like some... Or am there I just is losing my mind? Shoe bomber. Like, is are there? you talking about like the airport stuff? Like, why maybe I'm crossing stories off? in my mind because of the uh, airplane or the yeah, airline an, connection. Because I'm thinking, mm-hmm. maybe I'm thinking of a different story entirely. But, um, but that's also why I was. That's more so recent. Happy to, yeah, I was also happy to look into this one and find out um, really the true story because I had no yeah. idea about any of that stuff about Ted um, being a part of that experiment in college or no. any of that stuff. Like, and that is truly fascinating. And I feel like. To me, that's – I don't know. I feel like – because obviously we don't do those types of experiments anymore. But I, I've always been fascinated with, like, the crazy stuff they used to do back bef- – yeah. you know, before they knew that it was, like, mm-hmm. literally life-altering um, to people yeah. who are participating. But um, it is definitely interesting to think that that was the Unabomber's background. Yeah. I want to look into that and just see where other people are because, you know, some of them probably turned out just fine. Right. Um, but – I can imagine. I can't imagine what that would would do to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad we were able to discuss that one. That's one that's like always kind of in your brain a little bit. But I didn't. I didn't know yeah. any of this really. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, Melissa, are we ready to move on and do our final thing, our last thing before we go? Final thing for this episode. Final when you thing said it. Episode. I actually got a little nervous. I was like, "Is this it? Um, <laughs> you have to tell me if you're firing me." Um, Yes, let's do last thing before we go. We're playing kind of a combination game. Um, we're going to do, Mandy, do you want to do things outside or th- foods for this one? I'll let you choose a category. Let's do foods. Okay, so I'll let you start off. Whatever letter your word ends in, I have to start a new word that has to do with food with that letter. Okay. All right? Got it. I think if you can do the first one, I'll get the second one. Okay, okay. go ahead. Peanut butter. Raisins. Saltine crackers. <laughs> okay. Another S. Uh, snickerdoodle. Snap peas. Nope. E. <clears throat> e. Oh. Snickerdoodle. <laughs> oh, that's where you get messed up. All right. Mm-hmm. So we're on E. Uh-huh. Um, eggs. Egg. Let's go with egg so you don't want to get stuck with another S. Okay. G. Guacamole. Ooh. Uh, e. Enchilada. So that's an A. Um apple sorry another e another e i'm having a hard time coming up with e foods okay let's see um empanada (laughs) a apricot now you got a t okay all right um tiramisu you how dare you (laughs) i've been trying to help you away from e's give you a t and you return a u to me um a u i don't even Okay, there has to be something. I got to think. There has to be a U food. Wagyu? No, that's a W. Um, is there a U food? I don't know. Maybe this is where you lose the game. <laughs> All right, I lost the game. I don't think there... I mean, I'm sure there is a U, but I'm about I don't to Google it, it right now. Be. Let me find out. Congratulations. Uh, let's see. Foods that start with a U. Watch it say like page three, page four, page five. Like there's just so many and I didn't think of any. Umbrella fruit? Never heard of it. No lies. Urfa Biber? <laughs> okay, I win. 
<laughs> I win by losing. You don't win by losing. Lies. Oh, I guess because I it was technically No, no, no. I lost. <laughs> I lost. Okay. I do feel better that there aren't like super common things because I would They're not. Them. There's really I don't see one Silly. thing that I would have like instantly thought of. So Okay. Whew. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, and you're welcome. Thank you. All right, Melissa, I always love doing those fun little things. Also, it makes me realize how like slow my brain is because to actually think about what was the last letter and then apply yeah. it to my brain is not that quick. I'm glad that was not a timed activity. <laughs> no, I, I will not. We will not be doing any timed activities. No. There's so many gaps that you guys don't even hear in this where we're sitting there thinking that I edit out. So um, you're welcome. Um. Yeah, yeah. I take all of that out. And so you guys are like, wow, they're really fast. No, we're, we're not. not. <laughs> we're quite slow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that was the episode for this week. Uh, we will be back next week. I'm really excited about our next story. Oh my gosh. I sent you a little tiny sample piece of it as I was writing it last night. Um, and I sent you a picture of my face. Like, <laughs> literally, I read it and my face, I, I just turned my camera around because I was like, I have to send this to Mandy. Like, I was aghast. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, it's about a topic that we don't talk about a ton. So um, yeah, I'm very excited for next week's story. With that, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye.